and welcome to Frame and Reference. I'm your host, Kenny McMillan, and you're listening to episode 92 with Gary Lee, VFX extraordinaire and digital cinematographer for The Magician's Elephant. Enjoy. Are you watching anything interesting right now? I, I started Last of Us. And there we go. It was mainly, um, you know, I, that was a video game I played. You know, but it was okay. I can kind of rewind back to growing up playing tonic video game, entering high school, no, no, entering college, kind of just shut the whole video game thing down because realizing I'm being super unproductive, you know, spending all this time in the industry over the years, like seeing people, you know, gameplays of like GTA five, you know, all this game that the cinematic video game cinematic, the graphics are becoming so sophisticated. Yeah. I think it was like a couple of years back. I was like, I, I should, I should kind of play a video game just to understand what, what we're dealing with right now. Yeah. And got introduced to the whole open world thing, you know, and then last of us was one of those video games I played at that time where it just blew my mind in terms of the storytelling aspect of it. Um, and yeah, that was, that was like, I really into the story last of us and during that whole period, I got into that GTA five with a few other, um, video games. I quickly shut it down again because I was like, okay, oh my God, I'm just burning hours of my life. Goodness. <laughs> Red dead two. I, yeah. I, I, I didn't even attempt to, you know, because I know it's just gonna, way too big. And I have friends that were in like World of Warcraft and, you know, like some game that, you know, just becomes a take your, take your life away. Cut to present Last of Us coming out as a TV show. I thought the cast was fantastic. So I was like, my, me and my wife now, now married with two kids, one daughter, uh, turn on the first episode <laughs> and then, and then the girl showed up, I was like, oh no, cause I know what was going to happen. But I have played that game when I didn't have a family, you know, and right. now suddenly it was just, it just becoming so much harder to digest. So pretty much after the first episode, we like kind of go, do we want to continue on this? Maybe yes, no. And I decided to keep going forward because, you know, I, this is kind of what I do, but, right. uh, my wife, you know, kind of taking a break from it. And I would say the latest episode I saw was episode three, which is the episode <laughs> that, 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 that didn't have any of the crazy violence or, or the, or the, um, clickers or all of that. And it's by far my favorite episode of yeah. the season so far, but that's, that's, that's how far I've gone at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, because we're on, for uh, timeline's sake, we're on, for people listening, we're on episode seven that's just come out. Um, oh, my God, I'm behind. And it, uh, yeah, I mean, it, I'm telling you, man, it doesn't get easier. <laughs> seven, or episode three is particularly devastating, but it's not like, it doesn't suddenly become roses after that. Like, I, lo I, I, I love how they suddenly just introduce these two characters that you have no context of and you go through their entire life. And it's amazing world building. Oh, amazing world building. 
so good, so good. And that was something that was never in the game. And I, I love that about it because but man, the first pilot, I, I, you were just, I was like, I don't want to be watching. It's the right well, So I had to, I had to convince <laughs> my girlfriend that it was worth watching. Cause you know, she, she's not as into film and television as I am. And, um, I was like, well, it's about this guy and this girl, and he's got to transport this girl somewhere. And they, and you know, there's a lot of, but, and so we're getting through the first episode and his daughter fucking gets shot. And she was like, I thought you said it was about a guy and his daughter. I said, I said it was about a guy and a girl. <laughs> I didn't say which one. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, you needed to happen for his character building, all of that, but I just wasn't ready to see something like that. Having a daughter now. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's a tough show. I, uh, had the one you're watching. Um, I mean, last of us is up there right now. I'm kind of going through this. Um, I feel like I've said this a lot on this podcast, so it's a long kick, but I've been going through like nineties action movies kind of kick or like, you know, like stuff like the running man or like, um, going back and just rewatching air force one. Cause I'm trying to, I'm trying to like air go force through one. air force one is a good one. Yes. It, but it's like, I'm trying to think like, were these good or was I a teenage boy? You know, and sometimes it's good. And sometimes I was a teenage boy, you know, like the one is like, there's both. The one is like really good. And also horrific. like the fucking butt rock, just like dumb, you know, putting uh, the, you know, he's fighting people and they're playing uh, bodies by drowning pool. You're like, okay, this is very early 2000s. Like this was that weird era of just bro chancho yes. Yeah. Yeah, like that whole, like the jelly time in, you know, the American cinema. Yeah. That brings <laughs> the, the jetly era. The jetty era. He <laughs> was in a lot of stuff, wasn't he? Yeah, Romeo must yeah. die. Romeo must die. And man, he was, I was just watching an interview with, um, uh, what's his name? The older guy who was, who was in, uh, Rogue One. He's not, he doesn't look older. He looks like Donnie Yen. Donnie Yen. Donnie Yen. Uh, I was almost going to do a project with him, actually, that I had, I got to meet him in person uh, for this potential project that we're going to uh, do. Super nice guy, you know, uh, I still think that he's probably, it's like his time right now, you know, yeah. John Wick 4 and he's been a lot in many things. Yeah. He's, yeah. The, it is, uh, I'm. Do you find you're a little more in touch with this being on your side of things, but like I, in the past like year, I've started to really get excited about things that are coming out. Like projects seem to be more interesting. Like I think the past decade we've suffered through a lot of sameness. Uh, and it just, I mean, everything everywhere is like a good example of probably what's kicking off more interest in let's say weirder shit, but like, it does feel like there's kind of been this groundswell of like interesting projects that are, have started to come out over the past, like three, five years, something like that. Sure. And it was, it was interesting that you bring up everything everywhere all at once, because I, I remember going to the theater, like Alamo's draft house, uh, nice to watch the, not for that film, for the Batman, the oh. Batman film. And that poster was everywhere, you know, everything, everywhere. And it was just so fascinating, that particular poster, the way it was designed with Michelle Yeoh and, and it was always 
I remember that image made me really want to check out the film and just because of circum just circumstantial and didn't get to it until it was really popular and until everyone was raving about it. So I was I started teaching recently at USC, like for their like as a cinematography class for animator for animation. For the first time, that was my first ever experience. And in the class, I asked, like, what was the film that, you know, you guys all got super excited about these days? And everyone's like, everything, everyone all at once. And they're like, you have to go watch it. And I felt like I was really behind the curve. I have to say, I watched it and I, I felt like I was not the, I was not the audience that was like, got blown away by it. And I don't know if it was because I was behind the curve that Yahweh already has you know, such a huge following and, you know, it was just like really hyped up and every person I talked to spoke about it in such a high praise that perhaps it has normalized it for me a little bit. I think uh, that makes total sense. Cause if it, that seeing that movie, I got to interview the DP of that film. Uh, and so I went to an advanced screening. So he and I were talking about it and he was, you know, the chat was basically like, well, I hope it does. I hope people like it. You know, like there was no, and then actually speaking of podcasts coming out late, that one came out April. So it was like, there was a, there was a stupid reason why, um, it got, no, I shouldn't say stupid. There was a reason why it got delayed, but, um, uh, I should say like a, a non-consequential reason why it got delayed. And, uh, so it's funny to re-listen to that one and go like, we were talking about it, not knowing. And then it got released. The podcast got released when the, the film was like, you know, getting Oscar noms and stuff. Great, great. But, um, but also to the point of you teaching, because I did want to ask about that. Uh, that film reminds me so much of the stuff I wanted to make in college that it makes total sense that college students get stoked on seeing that in a theater. That kind of ridiculous but well-made thing was like right up my alley. If that came out when I was in college, that would be my favorite movie by far. Sure, sure. I can see that. And and it was like overwhelming reception like across the board it wasn't even yeah. just like half of the class it was like 85 percent of the class and me watching the film i think that i don't know how you feel about it but i parts of it really reminded me of like top monkeys oh yeah yeah uh, they borrow from a lot of things in that film like terry gilliam films and i had i was mentioning to my students like hey have you guys seen Club monkeys like you know um brazil like this type yeah. of films and and just a new generation of kids, they've never seen that before. I was like, you should check that out. And maybe there's like, you see this, you know, there's some inspirations that came from that. Um, don't get me wrong. I love their work. Like Swiss Army Man. I was right. like in the theater, just grinning, you know, from beginning to end, be like, who the hell makes this? And this is so awesome that this existed, you know? And <clears throat> by all means, I'm not trying to, you know, underplay the achievement, you know, of everything everywhere all at once. I, I, some things are for you. Me, you just like, I felt like it was a party that's going on that I wasn't invited to. I was just like, you know, kicking it out from the outside. But I'm so glad that it's, it's, it's doing very well. I love the fact that the, the male lead who was from, um, Indiana Jones back in the days. Uh, I keep forgetting what order his name is supposed to go in, which is very, Anglo-centric of me, but yeah, key, whatever. Yes, that's right. And oh, it's just so nice to see him, you know, I mean, he has such, such a talent that just kind of was forgotten for decades. And he, he's been, uh, doing, um, 
uh, fight choreography this whole time. No shit. Yeah. Am I supposed to say that? Yeah, you you can say the fuck word. You can say whatever you want. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. No. He. Um, yeah. He. That's. So the the advanced screening I went to. He so that's why you're so good as well as like a martial artist. Because I was like, oh, did, you, did you train for this? Like, did they? Because you never know. You know, sometimes they just they can just somehow be calling that up in like yeah. a month. Yeah. No, he yeah he's been doing fight choreography this whole time, and what. The advanced screening I went to was like a Q and A as well, and uh, this one line that Michelle Yeoh said that I've got a kick out of was, uh, some girl had asked like, "Oh, like, um, you were really good at like some of the fight stuff in this movie, you know? Like, how do you how'd you get there? How do you maintain that?" And she goes, "Well, when you wake up, do you like brush your teeth?" She goes, "Yeah," and she goes, "Yeah, I do karate." <laughs> it's like, yeah, like <laughs> that's that, that's uh. That one was intense, like in a good way. She she doesn't fuck around. Well, it reminds me of the conversation I had um, had the opportunity to be to have with Donnie Yen. Then you know he when he first because he kind of grew up. I believe he either went to Hong Kong at a very young age, or he came to the states at a very young age. But his mom, who's like being performance art, like martial arts, would get him up as a kid like five in the morning to just practice martial arts like every single day he hated it it was so cold you know has to get up when the first thing you do but that's 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 what made him who he is today yeah it's and he's it's craft you know and I, I you know i don't know if this is part of it but that man is almost 60 years old and he looks my age and i look 20 years older than i should look <laughs> Um, I don't take obviously surprising. There's which just does not exist. I'm an Asian person, space like I tried to do but like for you. That's probably why, like, a week, like, this is like two weeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, my, my friend Nick Mim is uh, is uh, half Asian, and yeah, he just gets these little wisps, but because he look he looks white and so everyone's like why can't you and he's like bro it's the the other half the other half's fucking up my facial hair game <laughs> i tried for sure like my wife is occasion and sometimes i'm like yeah what do you think about this this facial hair and she's just like yeah you get what? what are you talking about yeah uh i did want to ask though because you brought up the being a professor at usc and, and i suppose you kind of answered that i was going to ask like what um what the kids are into right now like what films are they talking about but kind of got there i did want to ask because it was specific to what you do and i've been talking about it a lot of people have been talking about it very recently on like youtube and twitter and that is uh if you have any thoughts or opinions on the introduction of um ai workflows into animation because there's a large like plagiarism question and and um, things like that, and I was wondering from your perspective. Because I've been arguing from a creative's perspective, but I don't know how how it looks on on the animator's side. You know. Well, it was it was really interesting because I, when I was teaching that class, that's when Mid Journey came out. Mm. Uh, it's just like one of those like Dolly, you know, like all those yeah. AI generated arts that you stable diffusion. Exactly, you can write prompts and and very quick. I had a 
I have a director friend who's really, really into that. Yeah. And he's just been generating a ton of content just for fun, just to like kind of get his brain going and, you know, exercise his mind. I even, I tap into it for a while and it, parts of it feel like it's incredibly powerful. Like, you, you know, as, as someone who is putting together a pitch deck or you want to do some sort of concept painting to just kind of get the mood of the project that you're trying to pitch. I can totally see a scenario where, you know, instead of hiring a concept artist, you'll start using something like Midjourney to just generate the first few pages and kind of see what sticks on the wall. And once you start refining it, then eventually you can hire someone who does it in a more precise manner. But in a way, it's, it's all entirely possible that this is just like the very first versions, like eventually you can get to a place where you can, um, really air you for the that, that last 10% of the final refinement into it. I always joke about in a few years, like I'll be talking to my computer and said, okay, I, we're, we want a tracking shot following our, uh, and you know, the character with a media 50 millimeter lens, you know, four feet away from him. And as he gets to that first bedroom, you know, camera pen right to reveal this person and like you can which is really scary and and it's like I feel like the future is you'll have a DP production designer director writer like you have probably like a handful of people that can just go and lock themselves in their cabin for a weekend at the end of that there's like a feature film gets made you know right like that is a, a very much a possible future. <clears throat> Excuse me. So when I, and I did the, the moment mid journey came out, I was in the middle of teaching the very first class I ever taught. I just brought it to the class. I say, Hey, this is what you guys are going to be up against. Right. All of you are going to graduate. You guys are all incredibly brilliant students at USC. And all your craft has been honed in over the years. And some of these, since it's an animation class, a lot of students are into storyboards. They want to be story artists. They want to tell, like, they're still kind of in that, um, like doing comic book, you know, like type of stage. There's a few students in there that tap into doing 3D animation, you know, using Maya, using software, using Unreal Engine to create content. For me, I have no qualms of which medium you choose. Ultimately, it comes down to what kind of visual storytelling you're doing and rather there's intention behind what you're cre creating. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, well, you're going to be up against, you know, this thing that even I start thinking about for my kids, what is the craft that they will have to get into in the future that might not be able to get, you know, displaced by AI and I feel like the answer, the conclusion I took away from all of this, you know, the ongoing conversation of AI, uh, you know, there's like this particular podcast I listened to called All In with like four tech, you know, funders that are always talking about what's up and coming and one of 
uh, one particular host on it named Freebird had talked about the skill set that he's now telling his kids, in which I believe is the right one, which is that your job is to have the ability and have the curiosity to continue to relearn mm-hmm. in your life. You know, don't just think about like, I think back in the days, people would go, I'm going to be in an illustrator and then you hone your craft, you spend years to perfect that very style and that becomes your life, that becomes your legacy. And it's entirely possible that that's, that can be quickly and easily replaced. And what is the next thing? Like, how do you, how do you continue to utilize them continuously as tools for your art rather than being, you know, replaced by them? Yeah. I, well, so the thing, it's interesting you bring that up because one thing that literally today I was uh, playfully arguing with someone about, but I'm kind of, Pat, I, I won't color your opinion before we talk about it, but uh, the, do you know that the guys Corridor Digital, they're pretty, I feel like, well-known in the VFX uh, space at this point. I feel like channel for sure. Yes. Yeah. So they're uh, some like um, independent VFX guys. They have a YouTube channel. And so what they did was they were able to, like the skill that it took for them to do this cannot be overstated. But what they did was they filmed themselves and then they trained an AI on a very specific anime and then had that AI overlay their live video with that anime style. And then they made a short and it looks, okay. it look it looks pretty good. It's quite convincing. And so there was this big kind of two-sided uproar on one side, people are saying, oh, this is going to democratize animation. And then the other side saying, this is straight up plagiarism because they trained it on this one anime. So like the thing that I'm kind of curious about from your end is because I went to at ASU, we talked, our, our whole thing was ethics based filmmaking. And so for weirdly enough, this is the one time where I'm like an ASU education is helping me with this conversation. Um, uh, where do you see the ethics in independent creators utilizing a tool like that to ostensibly lift someone else's artistic style versus allowing their stories to be told in a way that is, as they've said, um, uh, you know, high quality, like the big leagues, you know, oh, cause that was a big thing with like digital cameras, you know, nicer digital cameras allowed people to make indie stories that looked like what you saw in theaters. Um, so I guess my question to you is, do you see this kind of AI overlay type thing as an extension of that or something different? It's all really messy, I think, at the moment. Yeah, yeah of course. Is, is, I can see it from both sides. I really can. You know, I think Getty Images has just went into some lawsuits uh, because, you know, I think certain AI, you know, was basically taking Getty Images and using that as, like, crawl the entire, entire library of it and... And sometimes that's why you see like the watermarks on these like mid journey things that's like <laughs> oh, really weird. And it's like, oh, this is like definitely a watermark from one of these like companies. And, and you're like, yeah, that makes sense. You know, like they spent all this time to build this library from really generating, hiring photographers, go out, shoot stock footage, all of that. And now they are, you know, just completely being utilized by a, you know, AI, AI software company. Um, 
a part of it, you know, I, in, I had a, I have a friend who's a director. His name is Davis Slade. Um, it's a pretty good, we'll get together sometimes, grab, co- grab coffee and talk about this. And he, I remember him making a point that resonated with me, which that, you know, back in the days, people were doing paintings and suddenly you have your first camera that would, that came out and people are just taking like one snap, you got a whole picture, right? And you were like, that's cheating. How can you like that? You just take this box around, you press a button and then that's your, that's your art. That's this ridiculous, right? Like art is oil painting or social illustration that takes craft, all of that. But it is, it is until later that people go, oh, that just taking a photo doesn't mean anything. It's like, now, why are you taking that photo? What's the meaning behind what you're trying to capture? What is the story behind it? Like that derive into its own artistic narrative mm-hmm. that didn't. And I think throughout human civilization, there's just these many milestones that at first would feel like, oh, this is a, you know, this is very problematic. And eventually you get this all overcome by, by this like natural evolution of what it ended up become, becoming. Although even on that note, I still think that AI today is very different. Like AI today is taking it to a whole other level. I remember there was like an artist, uh, sorry, I'm like blinking on names a lot today. Um, Me too. It was an illustration. And there was a female artist who had done this, had, had a very distinct style and people were using prompting in her name, her style to create art that is like, you know, but she's, I believe she's Jewish and the art that people are generating was like, you know, Nazi related stuff. And you're just like, whoa, that's, that's, that's exactly what she doesn't ever want her art to be. Right. Using her voice to. Yeah. Using her voice. And then to the untrained eye, they'll be like, oh. So that's what she's about. That's interesting. And it does change that narrative. So we're in this uncharted territory that really on the legal standpoint, how do you even sort through, you know, I wonder if there will be some sort of imprint to those generated art that can be detected by, you know, computer that can be like, oh, this is a AI generated art versus a, you know, human generated art. What do you, th- I'd, I'd love to know what you think about it after, you know, talking to so many people. Um, so my position initially was pretty vehemently anti, <laughs> uh, I've, but I've, it's so new that I didn't have enough time to talk. I'm, I'm trying to, over the past many years, trying better to, uh, listen and, uh, work on stuff before I start talking about it with any authority. Which I think is very hard and in, in especially like the kind of YouTube social media era where it's like you learn something and then you immediately want to turn around and tell people because that's how you get clicks or whatever. Interesting. Um, Interesting. But uh, <clears throat> I think the tool itself is not problematic. It is the way that certain people are um, seeing it as an intro. So like uh, this one specific example uh, of, of stealing what I, what I would say is stealing someone's look to make something else. I think that's a, that's a hard no. 
But if you were to, let's say, if we want to use animation as the example, I think it's perfectly acceptable to train an AI on your own drawing style and then overlay that on video you shot. And then that way you can animate a whole thing without needing an animation studio. I think that is democratizing of uh, animation. Sure, sure. That makes a lot of sense. It's almost like training your virtual assistant. Yeah, but um, but I do see right now the sort of, I don't want to lump everyone together because I don't know enough about the AI art community, but there's, you know, let's do it. Right now they seem kind of like the NFT community where it's just a lot of like, you guys are going to, you know, you're getting your come up. It's now that I can make something rad, you know, so they'll train it on, you know, you're saying some famous artist and then they'll make their own thing in that style and they go look on an artist. And I'm like, no, you sure. made a pretty picture. The same thing happens with, with cinematography. You'll see people buy a red and then they go, look, I can make pretty pictures. I'm a filmmaker. And you're like, no, you made a pretty picture. There, there has to be some, there is, there does seem to be a kind of neo-anarchist position um, in, in, art right now, which is like whoever can make the best looking thing wins and anything that came before is uh, old bullshit. Yeah. You know what? You're totally right about that. And, and, and funny enough, you know, I started my career at Lucasfilm with some of the top like illustrator in the business. On uh, Star Wars 2, right? Star Wars 2. It was, it was like the, you know, dream come true to be there. And it was with people like Doug Chang, uh, Ryan Verge, Eric Timmon, and I was an illustration major at Arsene of Pasadena that it was very impactful to meet them and be like, okay, maybe I should think about doing something else. You know, like these, these guys are just way too good. And, but you were in the same room. Well, so I was there doing something sure. else, yeah, but, but I, no, I was very lucky. I, I feel that it was a journey that got me there that it was like the beginning of what previous is, you know, as a business, as like the industry period. But, but I, I don't, I don't tend to tell a lot of people this, like my major was illustration and very quickly at age of 19 meeting, like the top people, he actually, like, he actually gave, it was a negative experience mm. that you feel like, um, wow, that is a huge hill to climb in order to get to that place. Um, and that, and, and that was during the time that I was in the crossroad of going, am I doing traditional illustration or even digital illustration, or am I doing this thing called digital cinematography, which really never existed before. And I end up going down the path of digital cinematography. Right. And digital meeting and computers, not like digital yes. cameras. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, on computer, which is previous at the time, which is animatic at the time, which in animation, they call it layout at the time. The terminology keeps changing because it was just like such a new way of like pre-visualizing a film through animation. Over the years, like many people were surprised that that was my major illustration. They're like, Gary, I never knew you know how to draw. And <clears throat> because I just don't advertise it. <clears throat> but and my craft of illustration was still half-baked because I was in school halfway through learning my craft. I got my first job, I started working. Until very recently, since this whole mid-journey, since it's all AI thing, I'm beginning to, for the first time in my entire life, I started to post my own illustrations on Instagram because I'm like, 
this might not be the best work that's out there on this planet or like that came from people, but this is like done. This is like part of me as like, like the record of, you know, a creation that is, that is very real, you know, like it's unfiltered, it's unaltered. And for some reason, kind of weirdly, maybe becoming more, um, open about, you know, sharing my human created art, you know, and because it's just so easy to make perfect art now. I can type right. it like five words is a perfect art. And if I go, uh, the resolution is not high enough. I type one more word and the resolution is high enough. And, and I'm actually starting to look for those imperfections and be like, what is it that make me as a human being that, that really matters that I want to share it to the world and, and be okay with it. You know, um, there's a lot of people that does amazing mid journey or you know, AI art. And sometimes I'm like, yes, I know you can think, I know you can type. Yes. I understand. Like you go to a vocab, you know, you go to a encyclopedia, you randomly like point two words, it's going to give you something like good job. You can pick random words and come up with something unique. But I think there's, there's still something of like the executing execution of the idea that now I'm taking. I'm giving it more weight than ever, you know, like everyone can come up with ideas, but then how do you execute it to get there, to become a thing that people digest in the way that you intended people to digest that to me is like now way more uh, interesting. Yeah, no, it, it's, uh, kind of something that, that I've also been, I agree with you hundred percent. Like, I think. <clears throat> It's almost the JFK quote thing of like, you do it cause it's hard. Like the, what makes us human, what makes us human versus just brains in jars is like the ability to do these things and hone a craft. And in that time come up with, and these are my opinions, but come up with, um, what your voice is going to be and how you're going to communicate an idea or a thought. Um, you know, and, and we've seen the same thing with like photography, you know, people are becoming far more interested in film photography now because it's difficult because it takes time and, and expertise. See the same thing with like, you know, like carpentry now I've noticed is like starting to really come back and, and kind of these artisanal things are becoming more popular because I think at our core, we recognize that, um, doing these things is difficult and that shows skill. Like you would never say like, oh, I've got a real skateboarder here and I've got a guy playing Tony Hawk's pro skater. They're the same. It's the same trick, right? You know, right. they're both doing a 900. Yeah. It's the, I, I think there was an interview recently. Someone's like, oh, are you afraid of AI? And you're like, well, AI is only generating what has ever come before, right? Like it's not, it doesn't have to animate your imagination to create what is new to come. And I, I, I think there's some truth to that. Although I have to say some of this AI are very sophisticated. <laughs> they're doing some pretty new stuff. Yeah. Uh, how, have, how have the tools changed? I was kind of on the same topic. How have the tools for you changed, um, you know, going from your episode two to like life of pie or even beyond. Cause I imagine every film you've worked on, there's been a new set of tools that you've been given access to that, um, have helped you in your career. 
or in, even in just that job that you're doing? Oh, yes. No, I mean, I, I'm continue, continuing being thankful for all these companies that keeps pushing the envelope and develop, like giving us more and more better tools over time. But one particular software that's always been consistent is really Maya. Um, mm-hmm. That's Maya. That's, that was there since I was at episode two to, you know, Kung Fu Panda to Life of Pi to Magician's Elephant to even now. But now I'm the um, head of cinematography at Sony. And recently with certain studios, for the first time, I'm seeing big industry change of going into gaming. Unreal 5. Exactly. Something like that. And and that is probably going to be the 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 most significant uh change to come and for the right reasons. I think Unreal 5 really felt feels like a technology that falls out from the back of an alien, alien spaceship. You know, <laughs> yeah. did Nanai and Lumen, how they can calculate just millions of geometries of like that you can load the entire city. Yeah, I played that Matrix demo for the PS5 and I was like, this is actually insane because you can turn on like for those who haven't played it or don't have a PS5, you can turn on the overlay that shows you like how Nanite works or how all these geometries work and you can see it in real. They just delete the um, the skins and just leave the bones and you can see it all. It'll give you a, a layout of. Did you play this thing? Am I speaking to the choir? No, no I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I oh, okay, okay, yeah. downloaded it. Yes. And no, it's, it's, it's incredible. I think it does make me question whether we are just in a simulation or is that false? You know? <laughs> yeah, I've seen, I've seen some articles like that. Yeah. This is it, further proof that we're close. Oh, totally. I, it makes perfect sense. I think, uh, especially with Unreal 5.1, you have, they're operating with physical lighting, I, you know, they have the sun, you can dial up and dial down the atmosphere, the density of the fog, how much cloud is in the sky and by the mountain cloud it also gives you different quality of shadows and mm. um and you can literally have one single light of like that you can literally have a enclosed room with one window and you can have all the balances of lights that calculate accurately in that room um and if you want to just like have a subject in there and be like oh why don't i just put like a card next to his face to get that fill it's calculating that in like real time physical world space which because back in the day you had to place invisible lights all over the place right like in any animation it was always you have a a scene light source i'm kind of trying to explain this for people listening but like you have a light whatever the sun and then in the scene there's 15 other little lights that are invisible to uh the the renderer but affect the subject like there's no such thing as real bounce lights Every single bounce lights are a very like tiny intense intensified point light or something. Um, but for previous for layout in the animation is called layout for live action is more called previous. And now I think most animation studio has called it previous now too. And and then now they're being more favored into the wording of digital cinematography, which I think for the first time is kind of communicating what it actually is. Because for in my career, in my life, I've had very difficult time telling people what I do. You know, they're like, 
what? Like, what What do you do? Even my parents, like, they think I'm an animator. Dog, no one's parents knows what they do in a creative field. <laughs> and, uh, but for previous, sorry, going back to it, is we don't, we actually don't care about the final visual fidelity of an image. Like, our job is really to think about the relationship between your camera and your subject in that environment and looking at the story that's coming either coming from a script or from storyboards to try to explore and find opportunities that you're gonna you can shoot in this environment before it kind of goes down to the production to lay out to to rest of the pipeline you know for animation or for live action which is more in the visual effects realm yeah. um so in a lot of ways, like we can work with pretty rudimentary video game, you know, figurines, the environments that are still half-baked. And as long as we're trying, we're telling some sort of story and in that our job is done. You know, like our job is not to have like perfectly lumen shaded human character because all the departments down the line would, would, will have the ability to do that, like the lighting department, um, the color keys coming from, you know, production design. I'm like, really, I'm speaking to the animation process at this moment, which is, you know, the camera and lighting are usually divided into two different realms. That's someone like me, camera composition, why, what kind of movement, why do we do it? How do we want to stage our, our shoot? Uh, what's a camera language? All of that is kind of under my domain, but then um, lighting is handled by a totally different department. That later on, at the very tail end of the pipeline, they get to do that final render. Um, for the first time, I think Unreal is going to merge both of them and get more because now we get to play with lights in very real time scenario, which. We didn't get to do that before. Like even before, even if I try to come up with some sort of lighting, you're getting like eight to 16 lights at most. And that you would, you can kind of put a palette together, but now we get to really, you know, light it, you know, for what it is. It just comes down to, so what does that mean for the lighting department? Are we going to bring them up earlier to have that collaboration? So there's going to be this whole revamp of pipelines to come because of new technology. And, and it's a very exciting time, but it's also, I just feel like I'm always learning. Yeah. 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 It's cause that, that was kind of one thing I wanted to know, uh, especially in previous is like, how, how, how does what you do, um, as a cinematographer differ from a, let's say physical cinematographer? Cause I know, you know, that I can't remember what film, but someone was like, oh yeah, this animated film, the DP was Roger Deakins. And I was like, well, kinda, <laughs> what did he, what did he come in and say? Cause I saw an interview and he's like, I don't know. I told him I put the camera there and then I left. Is it, it's a, it's an interesting conversation. I, you're asking a lot of really good questions. <laughs> the, on Life of Pi, we had shot, we had previous like an hour and a half of the film. Oh. Before a physical camera was even appeared, you know, I think they had determined that Claudio 
uh, Mirandis was going to be the DP for the project, which super talented and you end up winning the film, winning this DP, uh, best cinematography for Life of Pi. And also right now with, you know, Top Gun Maverick, get, you think it's just like, probably the most fun film, you know, that sort of, yeah, absolutely. Um, so it was an honor to be able to like kind of work, you know, with him on Life of Pi during that time. And, but it was always an interesting thing that nowadays so many people touches the material be, before a camera actually comes on, on set. Life of Pi was, you know, especially with all the ocean sequences, we had, we previous the whole thing because part of it is to problem solve. You know, you have a eye, a tiger and a boat in the ocean. Sometimes you're dealing with six foot waves. Sometimes you're dealing with 50 foot waves. You have different weather conditions. And how are you going to communicate that information to your crew without having animated out to be something that people can watch and be like, oh, I see what you're saying. Doing Life of Pi, when I first, when I first, uh, it was Patrice Avery, a friend of mine at um, DreamWorks, who actually was talking to me about that project and sent me this script. I read the Life of Pi script and I didn't get it. <laughs> It was a weird script because it was so technical in a lot of sense, you know, like you know, the poor side of the boat, the, you know, the roar, you know, the life jacket and the vest. And the, it's like a lot of things that you really need to understand how the, um, you know, how, how, how the pieces interact. Yeah. The pieces that interact with the ship from that time. Like the you what what there's a lot of a lot of things that that just didn't have in my head, and it's until we, you know, I was on that project with Bradley Alexander, who was a member of Halo Entertainment, that which was a previous company that was started from uh, the same group of people that from Lucasfilm, you know, mm -hmm. when when I first started my career, that little piece by piece going through every scene sitting down with Aang, helping him visualize those that I'm beginning to see the whole picture come together. And so, yeah, the film was, there was like a whole animated version of Life by that no one got to see. And that was actually what ended up greenlighting the project. And you have, you know, a real DP that comes on. And sometimes I wonder when he comes on, you see like, dude, you guys already figured all this shit out. Like one, what am I doing here? Is this boring for him? Like I sometimes ask myself that question where he is so used to that now because everything they do is either following the storyboards or following a previs because some of these like bigger budget films, you just don't show up on set and be like, eh, I feel like I want to, you know, I want to place the camera right here because he feels good. Like you don't, a lot of times you don't have the time to do that because millions some, you know, thousands, hundreds, thousands of you know dollars is getting burned like per day kind of thing. And so everything is down to such a surgical way to approach things that, so, so I do, I do think that there's still two different crafts, um, digital cinematography and real cinematography. I would never claim myself as like a director of photography on the, on the physical set, because we just work with such different, um, tool sets. 
you know, like to really carry the camera, like D can really operate his camera. There's no way to do that. But I can operate a shit out of a, you know, Maya camera that makes it feel like there's a person behind it, you know, and. That it, was, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 no go ahead. Uh, well, I, well I no, no, you're good. People are here to listen to you, not me. Um, but uh, I, I think I would still consider you a real cinematographer. I suppose my question was just more like, I guess in one way you said like you don't deal with lights as much, you know, right, you, right, right. you think about it, but it's not part of the program. Yeah, we've always tried to find ways to have that be part of discussion, but it was never really falling under the um, the responsibilities of like a head of layout or head of previous. Right. Yeah. At least in the animated world, animation world, and in yeah. live action, certainly that's like a DLP's job. Yeah. Yeah. So your thing is more compositional but then it also makes me think like you get claudio like you're saying does is he bored or is he pissed off that like someone else already dp'd this like you know all the if i showed up and they're like here's where you're putting the camera it's like well all right but what do you need you need me to say yes like what do you need me to do <laughs> yeah no no it's it's totally right and i i believe like um man i there are dps that don't like that you know, there are DPs who love to shoot more organically to like get onto the environment and really feel the light of that day and try to find things. And I think there's a, so much more opportunity to do stuff like that, like a more airport driven content, you know, like mm. Deacon is, Roger Deacon for all the super cool Blade Runner projects or so on. You know, I, I think like something like Sicario is so beautiful that is like to me just how he kind of utilizes the lights and you know in in that part of the world um and to really being like open to the weather conditions of that day all that stuff i had done a short film i'd done a couple of short films but one in particular named aiden that we shut down like like it was a live action short film with um, there was an animation um, component to it, but all the actors are, you know, uh, live action. Academy Alejandro is a actor on it. We started on the streets in downtown, and uh, it was a chase. We're shooting things out of context, out of order, because that's very common. And we're to just, you know, right. get the most out of that day. And suddenly, you know, we were seeing that a, a storm was going to roll in and at this time it's going to start raining. And if we, do, if we don't get it done be, be, before that time, then suddenly you'll have this weird thing where the downtown turns from one shot of no rain into rain, raining. <laughs> and, and it was just like became this ticking clock as we're trying to get all the footage. That kind of stuff you just don't get in animated films, right? Animated films, like I make the whole film in my sweatpants you know, in front of my computer. And so I think, yeah, like, like a younger version of myself is like, I want to go to like some crazy third world country that waiting at, you know, the magic hour in the middle of nowhere for this like one beautiful shots. And now with his and, you know, family, I'm like, this is like actually pretty cool that I get, you know, get to make the film just in my sweatpants. You know, in front of the computer. So, 
Are you able to do your job now? Like, obviously, most of us are working from home, but have you been able to stay there? Are you still going in to an office? Is there some kind of hybrid work thing that you're doing with animation? Because I know all the editors that I've interviewed the last two years really actually shored up a lot of their workflows um, collaboratively because, you know, they didn't have to be in the same office now because they'll use one guy was using uh, Discord as like an intercom. You know, they've got Frame.io, you've got Evercast, um, okay, Google Drive, you know, all these ways to in real time share assets and, and notes. Yeah, no, I, I think the pandemic has changed the way we we work uh, significantly. I, I Certainly right now, companies are trying to get people back a little bit more. Um, well, they're paying for that real estate. <laughs> yeah. Got to get you back in. They got to make it worth it. Uh, I, I'm able to do hybrid, go in a few days a, a week, uh, but able to do most of what I need to do just in front of my computer. I think um, the whole entire, my, my entire experience on Magician's Elephant was I started working on that show like on the week of the lockdown. And oh, from that point on, it was like, wow, we have to figure out how to meaningfully work, you know, have digital, digital, um, virtual production in a real way. And I think really from that point on, all the animation pictures overnight became virtual production. Uh, yeah. you know, so that terminology has really kicked in because of pandemic more than like technology uh acceleration you know is that really i don't have a qualm you know working from home i think i do think you're losing a little bit bit of that like human interaction that is unintended human interaction that is very valuable like after you get off a meeting from a office with a group of people when you're walking down the hallway you're chatting about random things where you just going to don't get to do that um when you're on a zoom meeting that is like scheduled to oh meetings ended goodbye guys and everyone just like disappears right right so from a human human to human relationship building aspect i don't think is this strong but from a pr productivity standpoint i find myself able to get actually more done and able to com communicate more clearly through something like Zoom, because everyone gets such a clear view of what everyone's trying to show, and everyone can draw and annotate on it and make notes, and it just becomes a really kind of interactive session. Whereas, like back then, in like being at a studio, yes, sometimes you go in for a meeting at the meeting room, but it's really the only person that's driving that meeting room, driving the projector that has to control everyone else. It's just, we are talking and there's people in the back that might not see the screen as clearly. And, and then also like when you try to get everyone there, a lot of people don't show up on time. Yeah. So for some reason, everyone shows up on time because you just have to like wake up and turn on your computer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, I, uh, it's kind of funny. This is almost like what we were talking about with the AI thing and about like human artists, but, uh, in terms of like the human impact of being in person. But I remember when the pandemic first started and we were all like forced to be at home, I was interviewing someone who was the head of this animated show for Quibi, RIP. Uh, and, uh, 
they were they were saying how it was like same thing. They were more productive at home, but then they would like wrap a show and they were a weekly show. Like they they uh it was it was somehow it was they were animating uh every week. Like every like star uh, like um South Park, you know, where like it, they didn't back anything. Oh wow, like there, just, there's a whole pipeline. Yeah, it was we turned something around and we okay. Okay. Yeah. Um because I think it had to do it had to you know what it was is it was weekly horoscopes but that was the um uh the, the bones for the story of their little animated thing anyway cool. it was it was an interesting idea um but the thing that they said that they were missing was they would like wrap a show and then you would just log out and now you're time to go make spaghetti or whatever you know there was no like the uh, celebratory yeah none of that yeah, that is a little bit weird for sure. And and I've talked to some friends that are doing kind of what I do. And nowadays, like a lot of people feel, feel like it's just a blur. You know, they're they're just hopping from content to different content, but they're in the same chair, they're in the same on the drive, the same room. Whereas, you know, Typically, historically, you jump from one studio to another studio, you have different offices, you have different equipments, and all of that becomes like timestamps of your experience yeah. over, over the years. I can see that. I can see that very much. And one thing to add also to that is during the pandemic, I've realized people who have like a unit, you know, like a family unit, either you have, you know, a yes, significant other or someone who can endure the pan pandemic with you, they seem to thrive a lot better than like the single right. uh, young people who are really by themselves and being locked in and definitely suffer during that time. And so, so I think it's, it truly reflects differently between different people just based on their kind of family unit, you know, and the support system that they have. That makes total sense. Uh, due to circumstances, my girlfriend moved in with me like right at the beginning of the pandemic. And uh, now that you now that you mentioned that, I'm like, you know, that does make logging out like being done. Like I could continue to edit or whatever it may be. I do a lot of coloring. I did a lot of coloring over the pandemic, and now I'm still doing coloring. But um, uh, Younger me without my girlfriend living with me absolutely would have just gremlined all night and finished a project versus like, all right, you know what? It's eight o'clock. I should go eat dinner. Like I should go talk to, I haven't seen her all day, you know, even if we're in the same house. Um, that's a good point. And if all you, 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 like that was, you would have a different, completely different lifestyle, like without yeah. that there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That is strange. That's what I'll have to think about. I did want to ask, uh, being a, a sort of digital cinematographer, what were some of your um, cinematic influences? Like, where where do you see, because obviously with more traditional DPs, it's kind of like this look building thing. But since yours is so, composition, so compositional and so like um, the essence of cinematography, like what do you look at as like great cinematography that's inspired you? I mean, certainly... I mean, as an illustrator, that became the guy that's behind like a digital version of a camera. Um, you definitely gravitate towards really good composition, really good imageries earlier on. When I was younger, I was 
heavily into comic books. And at some point I was like drawing my own comic books. And so that within itself is like a practice in different framing, composition, you know, different formats. Uh, and certain, and, and definitely, I, I think it's in my college years that I transition more from like the comic world into motion art, into cinema, that becomes more of something that I look at like people be like, Hey Gary, have you seen the original Blade Runner? And you know, before college, I was never really that into cinema and I, mm. you know, I, I was going and study like old Kurosawa films and, you know, from, uh, or like Apocalypse Now or, you know, there's Stanley Kubrick's films. I think really the experience of Lucasfilm college that starts to kind of get me much more things to think about on the on, on like, like, like why films are shot a certain way. Jurassic Park was like something that kind of was the reason why I got into the industry. It was just, I was blown away by the craft of what make believe could be. Yeah. Um, I think there's definitely a, a natural progress, like a progression of that, uh, the type of art I gravitate towards. You, like, so the, your Jurassic Park, the Matrix, the that was aliens, a big one for me. Like, like stuff that are kind of bigger than life, you know, fantasized world that it's just stuff that like wows my, you know, child, like boyhood fantasy of like this sci-fi thing. And then, you know, you later on watching stuff that are developed appetite for stuff, for things that's a little bit more sophisticated, that's no longer about those spectacles. You know, like for a while I was into JJ Abrams sensibility, you know, with very fringe like, friend, like exactly fringe, the French is a great one. Uh, alias was a great one. Like things that are sort of very dynamic, you know, quick cuts fast moving camera shakes, lens flare, blah, blah, blah. And, and then, and then you kind of nowadays, like nowadays I'm really into, you know, something that doesn't get disturbed as much. You're really seeing the shot for his composition, like a lot of Denis Villeneuve's films that there's sense of tension just in that quietness, the stillness, like you get more when the camera isn't moving, right? Yeah. Like, whereas JJ is like, you get more because camera is moving. And obviously the inspirations, Roger Deakins, uh, Emmanuel Lubensky, Gravity, Children of Man, those, mm. those bone. Children of Man was huge when that joint came out. Oh my God. Oh my God. And, and it didn't do well. You know, a lot of people didn't even see it. Didn't. But he was like a cinematic, a cinematic explosion, you know, in my, that you were just so unique, so wrong and how were they able to achieve it? Emmanuel Lebensky actually came to DreamWorks at, and that was during the time that I was working at DreamWorks to kind of gave a talk on the camera sensibility and blah, 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 super cool guy. And I, you know, I wish that one day and met him at that time because of that talk. But he also, he had talked about how every film he does, it comes down to the rules that he's putting and the way they, he, he wants to make sure that the camera has it as a camera rule to the, like film. the restrictions, quote, quote. 
restrictions. Yeah, Children's Man never has like a helicopter shot. All the shots, you know, a majority of them are shot by like people hide. And it's all those things that you later on watch a film again after listening to him. I go, wow, that's like, he's totally true. There's like intention behind this. So I think what gets me excited these days is to look, to look at the material and to look at what this material invites me to do, right? Like deconstruct the material based on either the tone or the type of character or the, the character dynamics of the characters. So when you have those two characters on camera, how are you composing, right? How, what kind of feeling you want to get? Or like there are certain, you know, the introductions of a character, do you want him to have a big present, small present, you know, how much of the frame you're, 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 you're giving a fair frame real estate, you're giving it to him. Um, so just kind of deconstruct a material into visual components and try to tie them into how you shoot it and then try to find a cohesive um, language that doesn't make it feel like this is a film that's shot by five different, you know, intentions, right? Right. Um, so that's, yes, but I think the influence definitely changed over time. It was yeah. from something that's more eye candy to something that I'm understanding why these, you know, these films or like why Stanley Kubu, why The Shining is being studied so much, right? right. Like why is that centralized composition that's making me so uncomfortable, you know, like why, like how does it involve certain emotion? Yeah. That be, that whole, the whole thing of that conversation is very, very fascinating to me. And I'm, I'm still, I'm definitely learning still, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still on the journey. I'm on, I'm, I like to think that I'm at the beginning of my journey, you know? Um, yeah. I don't know if that answers. No, totally. It, it, and honestly, to, to your point about, uh, rules, you know, one, this will be the 75th episode that I've name dropped David Fincher, but I studied him a lot. Um, Oh, Dave, yeah, he's a huge influence of mine. Oh, wait, sorry. Oh. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of impossible to ignore him at this point. But, um, you know, he said he said something a while ago. I think it was for the game commentary, but I heard it in college and it didn't make any fucking sense to me. He said, when you can do anything, when the audience knows you can do anything, it's more important about what you don't do. And I, And in my head, I just could not get what that meant. I was like, what, what do you mean you don't, like, you don't do everything. And it's like, yeah, it's, but you got to narrow down that slice. And it's like, what, you know, it's those rules that Emmanuel is talking about. It's like, what, if you can move the camera anywhere, where don't you put the camera? That will inform what your style is and what your storytelling is, and what your language is more so than huge spectacle and stuff. And I also think it comes down to like a maturity thing, like, cause I'm kind of in the same boat where now I'm more interested in those sort of locked off camera character driven things than the films that inspired me, like your fight club or your matrix or, you know, fight club, men in black. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and those like animated films or, um, um, uh, high sci-fi action films that like really got me into film that I still love. I mean, they're still my favorite genre by far, but, um, yeah. yeah, now I, I'm more willing to watch Criterion stuff now <laughs> as sure. an adult. Sure, sure, sure. Like, like you said, Vinny is, is, is 
mentally stimulating versus like walking into, you know, a lot of films today where before you start the first frame, you already know what's going to happen. You know, you already know, you know, characters could be fine. They're going to win. There's a final battle. Da, 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 da. Um, and David Fincher is definitely a huge influence, like Fight Club, you know, Zodiac. Uh, he's, his sensibility is, I think, the girl with dragon tattoo, all of that. And, and I love the fact that him and Tim Miller are doing these, like, are producing these, like, Love, Death, and Robot series. Such a great series. It's just super cool. Like, I'd love to be able to participate, you know, in one of those projects. And, uh, and for some reason, he's always able to, like, even though I, th I have no idea what his age is, probably he's much older than me, but she just always seems so fresh still, like, yeah. at, at the, at the cusp of what's new, what's technology. I don't think he's ever, yeah, he's just such a unique filmmaker that, um, I remember one of his, another quote is, there's only one way to shoot a scene the right way. <laughs> right, <laughs> like, right. And you're like, the other way is, oh my God. Yeah. yeah, the, uh, the, uh, it's like, okay, okay. Tell me that you know what you're doing, you know, <laughs> it is, that's something that I've kind of like taken to heart actually is like, we all know the correct way to do it or the way that something should be done. And it's very easy to give yourself an excuse not to do it that way. Oh, that would take too much time. It'd take too much money. It'd be whatever. And it's like, all right, we'll find a way. Like, find a way to do it the right way. Otherwise, what are you doing? You know? But speaking of, that's another guy who previses the shit out of his films. I know Panic Room specifically was like, there's yes. an entire, that, that film exists in an animated form as well. I believe there was like a, a the, the DP on Zodiac, I think, um, which is blinking on the name. Uh, uh, it wasn't Cronenworth, right? It was... Uh, no, it's not uh, Jeff Cronenworth. Uh, Cronenworth is, uh, is kind of a... Let me... It's someone that Fincher's worked with many times, but I think... Uh, looking it up. Oh, you know why? Is he did it's no. Harris Avitas. That's there you go. I guess he really I've heard because I know people who worked on Zodiac. I heard he really in a lot of times doesn't like to work with David Fincher because of how surgical he is. Mm -hmm. With you know, everything is already pre boarded. So he just show up to put place a camera there to walk to match the storyboard. Some DPs like to be spontaneous. One is carry, take the camera, move it around, do different things. I think it's just everyone subjectively have their own method of doing yeah. things. I, uh, I got to interview Eric Messerschmidt, um, for devotion, but, and I didn't want, because I'm a big Fincher fan, I, I made sure not to ask about it until he brought it up. Cause I'm sure every interview he's ever done, they're like, so anyway, mine hunter. Um, but, uh, he, he seems to like that workflow. I don't want to speak oh. for him, but he, he did seem to think that like it makes, cause he came up through the lighting department too. So I think he likes, and I could see why this would be attractive. Cause I, I think I would like this too, is like you, instead of having to be so on edge about what you're doing as a DP, you can kind of sit back and put out fires and like oversee departments. And it takes a lot off your shoulders and you can take more of a, um, 
logistical role that the DP still has to do anyway. Uh, And you can focus on those logistics more of getting the shot that the director wants versus having to come up with them, uh, which some people might find not chill. You know, some people want to impart their look on the thing and some people are happy to be a part of the process. I feel like I kind of sit in that ladder camp. I don't necessarily. Yeah, I, I, I can see that too. I look on something. On the personal level, I've worked with directors that wants to explore, wants to do things. You're like, I kind of get a sense of what this sequence should be. You guys go and start shooting. You know, we'll, we'll get your footage, piece it together in an edit room. And you have someone like Ang Lee who is like naturally sitting next to me going, we want the camera to be four feet off the ground, you know, seven, you know, 50 millimeter shooting pies, you know, three quarters of the back face and the sun is like at like 45, you know, 38 degree angle. And I, I just became his hand in like, right. like his eyes in kind of crafting these shots in both scenarios equally satisfying because ultimately you're, we're here to serve the director's vision, you know, there is a lot of, I've definitely had friends that get on shows where just like, oh, we don't get to be creative. But I think ultimately you just, you, you find ways to, you know, to serve that film for the director. Yeah. Yeah, That's the, that's, that's the craft. Yeah. Well, I I feel like too, if, if you have enough of those gigs where you don't get to execute your creativity. You can find, you know, music videos or shorts or something where you have a Yeah, you just go make your own project, you know? Yeah. Like this, yeah. Totally. Not that it's that easy, but there is outlets, you know. Um, the, what was I going to say? Because I, I know I got to let you go here. We're kind of going a little over time. But, um, oh, it had something to do with animation. Yeah, 2.30, I, I have a meeting. But Hard out. Okay, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll get you out so you can prepare for that. Uh, what was the last thing you worked on? Because I know you're... I, I didn't, so I just say yes to every interview because I found everyone's an amazing person to talk to. I can't remember why they emailed, like, what project technically you're supposed to be promoting. It's Magician's Elephant. It was Magician's Elephant. Okay, okay, cool. Yeah. And that's on Netflix, right? Yes, it's on Netflix. It's coming out uh, on uh, 17th this month. And, cool. Um, it's, uh, I, was, I was the head of previous on that project. Um yeah, he was working with director Wendy Rogers, uh, who I've had a relationship with prior, who was a visual effects supervisor. And she, because of that, it was such a shorthand to be able to work with her and communicate. And she's, her and the producer, Julia Pister, were both having, you know, live action background. Um, Julia, in fact, which is an elephant's her first animated project. Oh, cool. Um, and Magician's Elephant at one point was going to be a live action film, by the way. Um, but at some point they pivoted into animated project, but because of their live action background, there's just a lot of shorthands that we have in terms of communicating, you know, the language, um, the entire cast of that film is like this, like a human world, human space. So we really tried to shoot it and kind of use utilizing like a, like a physical camera that behaves in a live action, you know, shoot mm. more than that, that, that was something that we leaned on for that project. Cool. Yeah. So it's coming out, uh, it was with, uh, production designer, Matt, Max Boas. He was with the editor, Robert Fisher, who edited 
Spider-Verse. Oh, uh, there you go. So <laughs> talk about an animated film. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's, it's, it's a group of very talented people, um, that I, yeah, it was, it was one project that worked entirely in my sweatpants because of the pandemic. But, uh, and I couldn't think of a better group of people to be doing that, you know, um, because in pandemic, I think, I think even now that we look back, we can joke about these things, but during that time it was kind of worrisome and scary because we're like where the world is going, you know, what, how, so it's, they're just some of the best people that I've had the chance to work with. And, and it's really, really, and pandemic aside is, is a sophisticated project in the sense that it's not, it's not, it's not a bombastic animated film that's trying to get you to some sort of like final battle resolution is very nuanced because it was based on a live action script. So it's really about character relationships and, um, yeah, I mean, it's a beautiful, it's a beautifully designed world as well. Well, it's kind of a lovely film, isn't it? It's not like too, from what the bit I saw looking it up, like it's kind of a nice, it's like a, it must've been a pleasant thing to work on versus like being in the pandemic and having to work on, I don't know, something like annihilation, I'm sure could be like, well, yeah, it's everywhere. Oh, it's so positive. It, yeah. It's, you're totally right. You need, you hit it now on the head. It, it, it's the, it's a, it's a positive film, a sweet film, a rom-com ish, you know, in, in terms of tone that, um, I doing pandemic and also the election, also the, like during that whole time, there was just a lot of stress in, in this world. And I feel like, like, uh, Mitch's album was a good antidote to, to that. It's a good headspace to be in for sure. Yeah. We were all per perpetually online during the worst possible time to be online. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, um, go ahead. Yes. Oh no, I was going to wrap it up. What were you going to say? Oh, no, no, no. I, 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 I feel that now I'm going to go and start listening to your podcast. <laughs> oh, cool. Um, well, I would, I would I'll love to have you doing this, by the way. This is the third year. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So we're, we're well along. We've had amazing guests that you're among, um, very happy with how the show's been going. So, uh, hopefully we'll, at one point I would like a sponsor. I would like to get paid to do this at some point. <laughs> it's, it's about a hundred, I think you'll probably be episode a hundred or somewhere near there. And, uh, yeah, if anyone's listening, I want money, <laughs> but, uh, let's put it out there. Yes. Yeah. Put the feelers out there, but I would love to have you back on it. Cause I actually, a lot more things I've thought about that I'd love to talk about, you know, especially like your time at Lucasfilm print, like kind of the soft tools that you were get must've been given there. A friend of mine works with, um, um, Adam Savage of the Mythbusters, and he often has little, oh. Yeah, uh, tidbits that he got at um, Industrial Light Magic. Yeah. He's such a unique, like, I love the fact that that show existed. You know, it became a thing. It's super cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, thank you so much. I, 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 did, I, this is like the most casual conversation I've had, you know, like, and I love, I love this format. I, it's one of the things that you're like, oh man, is this like a really official thing? Is it really serious? And nope. 
and thanks for being uh, so accommodative and friendly uh, through this conversation. Of course. Um, yeah, I'll I'll, uh, I'll let you get your meeting, but please uh, please keep in touch, and we'll and we'll, uh, well, fuck you, live in LA, and we'll just grab a beer or something. <laughs> yeah, please reach out. No, no, please let's let's do that, and and uh, yeah, go watch the film March seventeenth, oh, yeah. and uh, you know, and check out my work on my website GaryHLee.com. Yeah, absolutely, awesome. Thanks, man. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Take care. Frame and Reference is an Owlbot production. It's produced and edited by me, Kenny McMillan, and distributed by Pro Video Coalition. Our theme song is written and performed by Mark Pelly, and the FNR Mapbox logo was designed by Nate Truax of Truax Branding Company. You can read or watch the podcast you've just heard by going to ProVideoCoalition.com or YouTube.com slash Owlbot, respectively. And as always, thanks for listening.